Hello and a warm welcome to the MoveLib52 podcast from your hosts, Roland and Galena. I'm Roland and I am a skill-based weight loss coach who lost 110 pounds myself 17 years ago, kept it off ever since, and now I help my clients and readers to do the same. And I'm Galena. I'm a movement specialist and a trauma therapist, supporting people with chronic and persistent pain and recovering from emotional eating. This is your first time with us. Head on over to eatmovelive52.com slash podcast guest. Get your free download and uh, see how you can work with us. And now on to the show. Hi, and welcome to the Eat, Move, Live 52 podcast. We're very happy to have a dear friend with us today, Brian Chung, also known as Dear Dr. Ninja. Welcome. Thank you very much. Oh, so technically, Dear Dr. Ninja is not me. So, <gasps> who but... is it? <laughs> yeah. Well, he's a he's a ninja. He's a doctor. <laughs> it, it's he's your alter ego, though. He's he's yeah he's a super you could see him, but if he's a good enough ninja, you'll never see him. That's right. So we've known each other for a long time, a lifetime ago, um, and I remember first meeting Brian at a fitness summit back in 2000, and I think seven. So it's been a while, yeah. and it's just so nice to have another uh, incarnation here and be in a in a different space together. It's very cool. Yeah. 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 So tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, so I think, well, when we met in 2007, I think I had just finished medical school and I had also just finished my PhD. So, and that was the year that I started evidence-based fitness, which was my old blog. Um, and then I went on to become a plastic surgeon and I still do research. And now I've shut down evidence-based fitness because I don't think that it's being and moved on to doing Dear Dr. Ninja. It's more of an advice column than a blog. And so I welcome questions from everybody right into Dr. Ninja. Um, but yeah, I think that's, that's me in a nutshell, really. So, um, well, we certainly do have some questions. We have some questions from our own yeah. listeners that we're going to hand over to, to, to the ninja, if you can uh, find him in a few minutes. Um, but first, I was interested, like, you're, you're a medical doctor, and then you went to be a PhD, so you're a doctor on both ends, double doctor, right? Right. What inspired you to do both of those, and, like, how does one play off the other? So I didn't ever want to go to medical school at first. Uh, and I thought I was just going to be like a professor or somebody like somewhere doing medical research or health research at any rate. And, and near the begin, it was in the beginning of my PhD that I realized that I probably didn't really know what I was talking about. Um, when it, when it came down to like studying the, the, the medical condition that I was interested in. And I, it was it, at that time, I wasn't like I did my, my PhD was on tennis elbow. Uh, and it's not like I have like a passion for tennis elbow. Uh, but even with something so sort of 
benign as tennis elbow. It, I didn't feel like I really understood it from the patient's point of view. And I didn't understand it even from the doctor's point of view. So I had to rely on another, I had to rely on my supervisor who is a physician to really be the source of the information to tell me, well, this is what is important when it comes to treating tennis elbow. And even though I had like, I think 60 or 80 people in my study, even at the end of all of that, I still didn't feel like I really understood what the experience of that was. Uh, and I didn't feel like I still really understood even what the patient experience of having that was. And, and so that's when I decided to really make a serious run for medical school, because I felt like if I don't understand the patient experience and I don't understand the doctor experience, but my goal is produce research that changes the way people see and practice medicine, then that feels like a disconnect that you can't bridge very easily without just going and just doing it. So I went and I did medical school and a residency and and all of that. I didn't think that I was going to end up in plastic surgery, but here I am. So, um, so, so how did you end up in plastic surgery? Not through the tennis elbow, for sure. No, definitely not through tennis. Plastic. So the story of plastic surgery, base like in a nutshell. I've told this a couple of times on a couple of other podcasts, but um, the the nutshell story is that I didn't really know what I wanted to do, or rather the stuff that I thought I wanted to do ended up being stuff that I didn't really want to do. And so I had to figure out what I was going to do. And my supervisor said, well, we know you like musculoskeletal stuff. Uh, have you thought about plastic surgery? And I was like, no, why would I do that? <laughs> and, uh, and he gave me the name of one of his classmates who was a plastic surgeon in town. And he said, why don't you go follow him for a day? Because that's what we do in the medical school that I went to is you call up whoever you want to follow. And then they arrange to, you know, you shadow them for a day or two or, or more. It's up to you how long you want to stick around kind of thing. Um, and, uh, and I went and I saw this uh, surgeon um, in a, in a procedure room is basically like, you know, the first time that I met him and he introduced me to the first patient and he said, this is so-and-so, uh, she just had a breast reconstruction a few months ago. And today we're going to, um, we're gonna sort of round off her reconstruction because it's not the final, final stage, um, but we're gonna, we're gonna do the almost final stage of a reconstruction and we're gonna make her a nipple. And I was like, you're what? Um, and so he basically, you know, had her lie down on the operating room table um, and sort of was doodling on this sort of mound of flesh that sort of replaces the breast. Um, and then sort of injected some local anesthetic in there and started cutting. And it, this all to the naive eye looks very random. Um, and then started sewing. And as he's sewing, it's kind of like looking at one of those magic eye puzzles where the mm -hmm. image comes out if you stare at it long enough. As he's sewing, you can start to see 
the semblance of a nipple take shape. And at the end of the operation, where there was just a flat, not a flat, but just a mound of, of flesh, there's now a mound of flesh with what looks like a nipple on it. And I was like, you just made something out of nothing. Like that's basically just what that's just basically what what I just watched just now, right? Like there was nothing there, and now there's a nipple, and now I need to know more about this. Mm-hmm. And so, and I don't remember what we did after that for that that whole day. That's the first operation I ever saw in plastic surgery, and, and it was like that whole idea of being able to make something out of nothing to me was kind of it was like witchcraft. <laughs> it was like how do you like how do you do that like who how do you come up with that solution mm-hmm. wow well, well, yeah. and what i'm hearing might be a bridge to our next question is that there is an element of creativity you know it that's what people say it sounds like it and that's i yeah and and that's what people think and i mean there is a there is this element of creativity i think from the person who designed the surgery at the beginning like there's some level of innovation that occurs where they're like how do i make something from nothing given that i have all of these sort of conditions that i have that i could take advantage of like skin stretches for instance right so to me it sounds like an engineering thing like once you yeah and so and, and so i think you can take the you can take the sort of creative side of things and say well yes there is a certain artistic element or creative element to this, but kind of at the end of the day, it, it's actually quite technician-like, um, and it's just when it's it's a little bit like a magic trick, where you watch the magic trick and you're like, well, how did you like? That's a very creative way of making a rabbit come out of a hat, right? And then when you learn the trick, you're like, well, it doesn't seem so magical or creative mm-hmm. anymore, right? Yeah. The, because the illusion is broken and you're like, oh, well, there's like, I don't know how they pull a rabbit out of a hat, but I'm going to pretend, I'm going to say something that I, if there are any magicians listening, this has nothing to do with any information that I have about this trick of pulling a rabbit out of the hat. But it's like, you know, if there was a mirror involved, you would say, well, of course, if there's a mirror involved, then it makes sense that you could do this thing. You could make it look like you pulled a rabbit out of a hat, right? Okay. So from yeah. that to our research question is, how did you get into being so excited and passionate about explaining research to people, both lay people and professionals? Uh, I th- I'm not sure where that one came from. I think that's just, I think that's just, a, I think that's just the nature of being curious and, and wanting to sort of do right by people a little bit. I, I think when I, when we first met, it was really at that time, fitness and nutrition was kind of the wild, the real wild, wild west, uh, where people were just saying all kinds of things without having any real accountability for anything that was coming out of their mouth, right, or on on their web page, right. Um, and so, you know, you you kind of felt it, it wasn't like I had this. I felt like I had a responsibility to do it, but it was, I think there was this moment where you have, where you're like, well, I have this knowledge that could maybe help a bunch of other people avoid getting scammed, right? Or at least have a second thought about whether this is something that they're actually going to spend their money on um, or even their time on. And so- There's also creating a culture of how we speak about particular realms 
because if if the culture back then was anybody can say anything and you have to do 100 days of fasted cardio um, based on nothing. Um, now, how are we going to change that and have a conversation where we're not con constantly, you know, looking at information going like, where did that come from? It's, other than, you know, conjured by, down by a spirit as has been on the internet recently, more and more mediums and oracles, <laughs> and I don't know what's happening, but, you know, we need to have a standard of speaking about things that are important. So I'm sure you've heard this next one before. Um, you get this, we get this a lot. People, people come and they, they heard, they read, you know, WebMD or some sort of thing and they go to their doctor and they come to us and they say, my doctor doesn't know what he's talking about. No doctors know what they're talking about. And um, I know that my brother's a doctor, so I know that's not true. He knows what he's talking about. We know plenty of doctors. You're a doctor. We know Dr. Spencer Nadolsky, he's a doctor. And um, so when people say the medical profession doesn't know what they're talking about when it comes to nutrition or exercise, not specific doctors, but in general, what's your take on that? Um, so when I get that, uh, blowback. I the thing that I talk about mostly is this idea of, you know, a team-based approach to taking care of patients, right? So when I do surgery, or if you have surgery that requires some sort of rehabilitation after surgery, I don't do that. I send you to a therapist, like I send you to a physical therapist, and then they have a set of skills that they use to get you back on your feet or get your hand, like I'm a hand surgeon mostly, so it's I send you to a hand therapist and they do the hand therapy that gives you your hand function back after the operation that I do. Now, I have to know a little bit about hand therapy and I have an interest in hand therapy, so that's, it's a little different because I probably know a little bit more than some of my colleagues about like all the ins and outs of hand therapy. Um, but the reality is that I still don't, do hand therapy with my patients because every moment that I have that I'm taking that I'm not actually operating is is time that somebody could be helped in a way that only I can help mm -hmm. them. Right. So when a medical professional doesn't necessarily want to take on a nutrition or exercise topic, it's not necessarily that they and they that they don't know what they're talking about and they might not know what they're talking about. Um, then I think it behooves them to refer you on to somebody who has the skill set that allows them to to allows the patient to accomplish the goal that they have around those two topics, right? Um, you know, we don't. It's it's funny because like we get there is an educational curriculum in medical school at least now, at least in my medical school, which is you know now at least ten years ago. Um, on nutrition and weight loss uh, because obesity has become such a prevalent topic. Um, and if you looked at it from a purely objective number of hours point of view, it doesn't seem like very long. I think we spent like a week on obesity in general as well as talking about weight loss counseling. Um, but we spent also like a week on the entire function of, you know, 
heart like we spent a week on like just like heart disease right or not even a week on heart disease yeah. so yeah. you know like that's the scale in fact to have a week of anything in medical school is actually a lot of medical school when you consider how compact that curriculum actually is so i don't think i think that where medical professionals can sometimes fall short is that they, they haven't necessarily had the exposure and the experience to counsel somebody through a predictable through to a predictable result mm. right and just like i don't necessarily have the ability to take somebody who has who is now freshly after my own surgery right i don't necessarily have the skill uh, or the knowledge to take them to full hand function uh, because that requires spending lots and lots of time with lots and lots of patients to troubleshoot everything that can possibly go wrong and get them there and that's what my hand therapists are for right they're the ones that have that experience they're the ones that see it i'll see my patients in follow-up and sometimes i have to intervene like you know with a second surgery or you know or what what have you right and some and we we talk a lot like i talk with my hand therapists a lot um, and I get to learn from them, which is great, you know, but the reality is that in terms of the number of patients that I have personally guided through rehabilitation, it's a very, very low number. And so if a unique problem comes up, I'm usually the one on the phone to talk to my hand therapist and say, hey, we have this issue here. Like, what do you think we mm -hmm. should do next? Right. And I don't think any of my patients would ever come up to me and say, you don't know anything about hand therapy. Right, like that—that that would never happen. So, I think that's the—that's the posture that I think that that we need to try to think about a little bit more when it comes to well, what does the medical profession really need to know about nutrition or exercise? Because you know, on the one hand, yeah, it would be nice if your if your if your doctor could be your personal trainer, right, and prescribe you an exercise program and then run you through the exercise program, and we could force every medical student graduating today to get like the National Strength and Conditioning Association CSCS certification. And if we did that, we would put every personal trainer out of work instantly because medical students will learn what you put in front of them and they'll learn it really, really well. So it, that we do know because they are super keen people, right? So that's, they're chosen on that basis. So, you know, it's like, yeah, doctors don't necessarily know how to prescribe exercise, but they know when it's time to prescribe exercise. And maybe that's all they really need to know because they need to know a different set of skills that only they can do, right? Personal trainers or, and good coaches are there so that doctors don't have to personally train their patients. Yeah. So that the stuff that only a medical doctor can do they, they are free to go and do that well, and help as many people as they can with those skills. I'm also wondering, as our society has become more and more complex, overwhelmed and disconnected, that there is a need, like 10 years ago, like right now, Roland has some clients where he's helping them make sense of what five different specialists are saying. So they, like his job is to integrate all the doctor's advice into something that's manageable. So Roland's like an implementation coach, right? Mm -hmm. But people didn't have these, it seems like people might have not had these complex cases to solve or multiple conditions. 
And so they're needing that guidance. So it's almost like new professionals are popping up or new professional niches are popping up within that. Like I work within the niche of chronic pain that I couldn't have even dreamed of working in, you know, eight or nine years ago in a very particular way. And we have to stay open to seeking out the correct people instead of complaining, which is mostly a disgruntlement that we hear that your doctor is not your one-stop shop. Yeah, and th that has to do with, yeah, the story of what a doctor is and what it is that they can do for you. Um, you know, I think the, the concept of patient navigator is not new and patient integrator is not new. And for some people that does sometimes mean that it is their family doctor or their primary care practitioner that sort of manages all of that because they're, they're the central sort of managing body, at least in Canada, that seems to be more the case. Um, but medicine is growing constantly. So you, it has, it is, or if it isn't already, it will become completely impossible to be a one-stop shop physician for anything. Because the more we know, there's still only, you know, unless we want to make medical school another, you know, four more years, if you want to make a 10 years of medical school, right, then there's no way that we can do that. Like, we have to rely on each other even more than we did before. Well, I think back, the, I mean, like 100 years ago, like doctors, we, we had a lot of the same problems, but doctors didn't know that there would one day be solutions to some of these things. So they were doing the thing. So a doctor now would come and say, oh, I have this problem. Oh, I know there's a solution to that, but it's not me. I'm going to send you somewhere else. Where 100 years ago, the correct. doctor would have said, well, I'll do what I can. Yeah. Tough, tough luck, probably. Yeah. But um, yeah. Yeah. And, and 100 years ago, they might have still bled them. So, well, no, maybe not so much then. With leeches? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, leeches, hey, uh, we used leeches leeches coming back. Leeches yeah. are very but, popular where uh, I'm from. Very yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, like the, the history of leading people is not, is like, is ancient. Yeah. That's for a different podcast. It's yeah, the, exactly. We can talk about that. Leading podcast. The history of, the history of yeah. 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 Brian John. Yeah. It, it's fun. It's fun. Hey, when we're not podcasting, we are creating content on our website at eatmovelive52.com where you can find our programs, courses, and several books. If you've never been there before, make sure that you go to eatmovelive52.com slash podcast guest, get your free gift, and find out how you can work with us. We coach people one-on-one -on -one and in groups and we would love to gift you a complimentary 30-minute discovery session. So if you're interested, come on, eatmovelive52.com slash podcast guest and work with us. So I think some of what we were just talking about as far as like the vet, you know, the role of the doctor and things like that, I think it's going to yeah. come through a little bit in our next, in our, because we have a couple of questions from our studio audience, right? And, um, but that, they're for, they're for Dr. Dear Dr. Ninja, they're not they're for, for Dear Dr. Na Ninja, yeah, so. <laughs> Does he have a different voice or does he sound shockingly similar to you? He sounds remarkably like me. I don't know how that happened. Okay. Yeah, it's a very weird coincidence. Okay, so the first question is about, everyone's heard about this one, keto, right? 
So you got the question, yeah. all right? I got the question and it was, should I go on a ketogenic diet because it's healthier versus just eating a regular, the person was eating like a regular whole foods, more like a paleo diet. Okay. So I feel like ketogenic diet right now because I mean, keto, so the ketogenic diet is not new. We all, we, the, the three of us know that it's not new. Uh, in fact, it's quite mm -hmm. old. Um, and its current incarnation in, because it does seem to have gained a sort of a new popularity because it was popular for a while and then became unpopular and now it's popular again. Um, I feel like this current incarnation of keto is really about weight loss. Like, I feel like the story that people have about keto is really is not so much about being healthy or um, uh, or any kind of like uh, there used to be more of a mental health slant to keto, um, you know, in its previous trendy incarnation. Right. This time around, it feels like the story has a lot more to do with weight loss. So. I would, and so it's, I think placing the question in context is really important because it's difficult to tell from the person who's asking the question, are they asking about like the keto diet in its current incarnation or are they talking yeah, about the it, keto in diet? in its current in incarnation and she has a couple of autoimmune conditions. And so the, the hope yeah. is that she can have less brain fog, that she can sleep better and that yeah. she has Hashimoto's. Uh, yeah. So it's quite complex so, and, and fibromyalgia. So she, she's yeah. really kind of a little bit um, desperate, I would say. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And um, so I think the first question you would want to ask before you go on any diet is, can you do it? And if you can't, like, if you look at, if you really look hard at it, it's like, well, could you stick to a keto diet? Um, and I think there are lots, there are some people that say, absolutely, I can stick to that, no problem whatsoever. And there's some people that look at it and they say, well, it looked like a really good idea, but now that I really read it, this looks like it's insane. You know, I don't think I can do that, right? So I, I think that's the, that's, you you have to be realistic with yourself at that point because keto can be really challenging for some people. Um, it's not a, it's, it's not like the easiest of diets, I would say, you know, um, and so that's where I would probably start with that one. And then is it healthier becomes like a secondary question at that point, because the question then is, and we'll talk about, uh, we'll probably talk more about this is where, what are the, what are the things that you are hoping will happen that make you decide that it is a healthier diet? Mm -hmm. And, and having a really good idea of what those are before you just go into this nebulous, healthier diet idea. And so, you know, if you have a bunch of chronic conditions and what you're looking for is mostly about symptom modification, or symptom relief, or at least symptom decrease, um, then you could try it. There's, I don't think that the keto diet is necessarily dangerous, um, you know. But you, you're trying it with the express 
acknowledge that you are going into it for these following reasons. Mm -hmm. And so now you have a reason to stop or a reason to keep going other than I'm just doing this because I'm living in hope, right? right? Um, because I think for some people, the keto diet represents hope. Mm. And so if you don't have a good indicator of whether your hope is being fulfilled or not, then you can just continue to live in hope yeah. and, and never actually see the fruits of that, of the labor that it's going to take to go through this change that you're thinking about going through. So I, I think that that's where I would start. And then the question is, should you or shouldn't you, has really mostly to do with whether you can and whether it actually, if you do, whether it brings about the changes that you hope it will bring. And if it does, well, then the answer retrospectively becomes, yeah, you should have, right? My, my concern is that, I mean, like over the last like, 10, 15 years, I mean, a lot, like if thinking about 15 years ago, when low carb was, we just called it low carb, right? And then there was like lower, lowish carb. So back then, everything was cured by low carb, right? And then a couple of years later, everything was cured by paleo. And then there's people that say vegan cures everything and vegetarian cures everything. Um, and now they're saying like the same people that said, you know, paleo cured it all, you know, five years ago are now saying it, well, keto cures it all. And there's the carnivore people, carnivore cures everything. So it's just really hard. And like you look on the, or like our clients will look on the internet and they'll see like a news article and a link to some interview with somebody. And it says, Oh, you know, I had all, I had Hashimoto's, all these things, all my symptoms are gone. What was this? What was the ticket? Why did keto? Well, I can find as many people who did paleo five years ago that had said the same things. And I do think that there are merits for some people to all of these diets, but, and I think our bodies are so complex that, and each person's is different, that different things will happen to different things. And then also there's a huge component of whether you believe it's gonna do it and whether you can stick to it as well. I yeah, absolutely. I, I think that it's um, what we, so those stories are, you know, I'm, I'm gonna use the word anecdote, but I don't wanna use it in the way that some of the evidence-based people wanna use it because I don't think anecdotes are actually as useless as people think they are. Stories are really powerful um, and success stories are also really, really powerful. And it's easy to forget that what you're not seeing is the denominator of everyone who has also tried the diet for which nothing has ever happened because they don't tell that story. Those people aren't telling their story on the internet because there's kind of nothing to be gained by doing that. So you, there aren't websites out there saying, I tried this diet and nothing happened, right? I, I feel like we should buy the domain name now, right? And, you know, I tried this thing and it didn't work.com and, and just allow people to tell those stories to try to balance out. Because if the, if, if the, what you're seeing as success stories is the numerator of the fraction, you need to see that that numerator, the, the number that sits on the top side of the fraction, right? Um, you need to see that it is at least as big, hopefully as big, or if not bigger, than the number on the bottom, 
yeah. right? So a one-to-one ratio would be a 50% chance, right? So if there are just as many people who have tried keto that had symptom relief as people who tried keto who didn't have symptom relief, then you're doing a flip of the coin, right? Um, so you need that number to actually be higher. Yeah. Right. Right. Unless you're willing to gamble on a coin flip. And I think there are some people that would take a 50-50 chance. Right? I think there are people who are in very dire straits who would be like a 50-50 chance is better than zero. And so I'm going to take it because nothing is changing and I need to get better. Right. So I think that's actually an important thing to think about. But, you know, I agree, Roland. Like, you know, five years ago, everything was fixed by paleo. And now, like, now it's not only keto, but it's also carnivore, right? So, um, but I don't think that there's necessarily, again, like, short of malnutrition, there's not necessarily a lot of danger in experimenting with it. And I, I don't like, I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with the the idea of I have to find out what works for me philosophy a little bit. What I have a problem with is when you figure out what is has worked for you, what works for what works for me isn't necessarily what works for everybody else. And so I shouldn't be telling people the story as though it's gonna work for everybody else. Right. You know? And that's a, you know, it's like the outlier effect where there was, there will always be people who are outliers and I tend to get people in my practice who are coming to me because they've been everywhere else. So I have to say that I get the people that will tip that one-to-one -one ratio in a really unpleasant way. <laughs> and and yeah. it's, it's sad yeah. to see how tired people get and how often they've done different things, including keto, without any supervision and without any understanding of like electrolyte imbalances and what might happen if you're not quite healthy. And mm -hmm. how you can feel not just have the keto flu or the low carb flu, but end up really sick and end up in the ER and needing to have mm -hmm. transfusions and all sorts of stuff. And it's just so, it seems so benign that you can just go and try something. And it's not benign for some people. And there's a responsibility that we all have to telling the story. Yeah, some of these, oh, some of these diets are almost innocuous. Like if, they, if you do a diet where it's eat less, well, you have to eat a lot less to have a problem. But if you have to have a diet where you have to do, where you cannot easily naturally eat according to that diet without supplements or measuring or artificially adding fat to your diet where you normally wouldn't do it. Or adding I mean, ketone packets. Or ketone packets, yeah. It's like really hard to do it properly, <laughs> right? So you can end up being, you can end up being sick. Like, yeah. Or, and, yeah. and like a lot of times they're not even like remember in the olden days when Atkins was big and people were oh Atkins didn't work for me what oh did you follow it yeah. to the letter well I, my brother told me all about it yeah well you yeah. weren't probably weren't doing the Atkins diet yeah exactly yeah yeah all right yeah and so I, yeah the definition of what this person thinks is keto is also important um you know I I made the assumption that we were going to talk you know that it was yeah oh yeah definitely yeah yeah that it was going to be the thing that seems to be running around right yeah, now, it is, yeah. but it might not be. It might not. I guess be. it depends. She could have found an article from two thousand and seven. Exactly. Right. Right. Well, yeah. we're going to see what next incarnation of uh, high fat, low carb awesomeness hits us. Or what new diet? Two thousand and the new yeah, diet that fixes 20. everything. So our next question is again around excluding certain food groups 
Um, but do you see that there is a benefit in excluding gluten and dairy, one or both of them, for an autoimmune condition? And in this case, um, our community member has Hashimoto's disease, and um, she was wondering whether that's necessary to do long term. Um, what's your take on that? So Hashimoto's, so for people who don't know what Hashimoto's is, uh, so Hashimoto's is an autoimmune disease where the immune, some of the immune cells in your system attack the cells that produce thyroid hormone. And so over time, um, your thyroid gland can't produce any more thyroid hormone. And one of the markers um, of that is your thyroid stimulating hormone, which is the hormone that is produced in your brain or by your, um, your hypothalamus um, to tell the thyroid gland to make thyroid hormone. So when everything works okay, then what happens is um, that the gland that tells that sends out the signal to your thyroid gland, um, it senses that there's thyroid hormone running around in your system. And so it stops sending the message or sending as strong a message to your thyroid gland to make more thyroid hormone. But if there isn't enough thyroid hormone circulating around in your system, it will just continue to scream at your thyroid gland to make more thyroid hormone because it doesn't have any other function. It doesn't know what's, it doesn't know why you don't have thyroid hormone. It just knows that you don't. And the only thing it can do is yell louder and louder and louder at your thyroid gland. And your thyroid gland is sitting there going, well, I think I'm pretty much dead. So I'm doing the best I can. Give me a break. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, and so the, so that, so when you go on a thyroid medication, what that does is it replaces the thyroid hormone that would normally be in, that would have been produced by your thyroid gland. And so it can quiet the thyroid stimulating hormone gland. Um, so now it's no longer yelling at your sort of half dead thyroid gland. And so I think for Hashimoto's disease um, uh, specifically, whether or not you decide to remove gluten, I think has to, more to do with maybe what stage of Hashimoto's you're in. Because if you're already at the stage where you need to supplement for thyroid hormone, and it's basically, you know, if you don't take it, you basically aren't producing any, uh, then the, the damage is already done. Mm -hmm. And, and eliminating gluten from your diet isn't going to bring back your thyroid gland to its, its normal function. It's not going to get you off the thyroid medication. So then the question that I would ask back to that person is, what, what are the benefits that you think are going to happen from coming off of gluten mm -hmm. in this case, right? Um, and the and the and the and that person might have an answer that has nothing to do with their thyroid hormone, right? Um, in which case, then we have to have a different conversation. But if the if the worry is I need to preserve what little thyroid function I already I still have, I think that depends on whether you're already on medication mm -hmm. or not. 
so in the case in which they might not be, then that might be worth trying. Is that what you're saying? Or am I, am I hearing that wrong? Yeah, I think if the, if the, if the perceived benefit like if what they think is going to happen that the, if they think what the benefit is is that it's going to prevent them from taking medication then they can try it mm -hmm. but i wouldn't try it on the basis that it will prevent you from having to take medication because the progression of hashimotos it's not predictable but it seems to have roughly the same end point mm -hmm. right and so you you there's a you know a you know you're playing it again we're, we've talked about this already you're playing the odds at that stage and you're you're just sort of saying well i can do this going on a gluten-free diet isn't going to drive me insane and there's this slim chance that i will slow the rate at which my thyroid cells are being you know, destroyed essentially right um so maybe i'll i'll try this right right um, and again, because there's not a lot of drawbacks to being on a gluten-free diet that I can think of. It's not so much about like keto and all of that, as long as, again, as long as you're, as long as, again, we have to have a good definition of what a gluten-free diet looks like and yeah. all of that stuff, yeah. right? So we don't, we don't end up in a place where somebody yeah. is malnourished and in the eating. Well, like bread right? is not but, an essential food group. So like, as long as you're yeah, eating exactly, other right. of like, bread, you're vegetables yeah. and potatoes or whatever you're yeah right where it's like if your elimination diet becomes not just a you know certain foods elimination diet but all foods elimination <laughs> diet then we have a different problem right. right um and so you have to have a good understanding of what gluten is and what where gluten tends to be in your foods right just like a person who has celiac disease has to understand those concepts, right? I think it was Jimmy Kimmel that had that clip where he went out into the street of LA and said, you know, who is on a gluten-free, like he asked people, are you on a gluten-free diet? And they said, yeah. And like, do you know what gluten is? And they had no idea what gluten yeah. was. They just knew they didn't, they just knew they couldn't eat it. Yeah. And so they were, I think those people were depending entirely on labeling. And waitresses. To, yeah, and, and possibly like wait staff, yeah, to tell them, you know, whether there was gluten in it or not. Right, without really ever knowing what it was or how it would, you know, or what those consequences would would look like, right? So and that was a very funny. Yeah, it was really high. funny. Someone said that yeah. saying gluten in LA is like saying bomb on a plane, <laughs> and and you totally know where you know you're in LA. We're going to be there this weekend, and I don't even have to look at a menu to know it's going to be gluten free like ninety percent of the time. Just dedicated, just dedicated. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. quite quite amazing. Yeah. What I, I'm happy for my friends who have celiac because finally they have a bunch of choices. <laughs> yeah, and yet sometimes they don't. So I have a couple of colleagues whose children ha were diagnosed with celiac, and it's it's kind of a boon and a curse because the producer, like especially with small some small businesses, the producers of gluten free don't totally understand what gluten-free means either. oh so they're in the facilities that are contaminated yeah so they actually have cross-contamination problems where you know they're trying to cater to the trendy gluten-free crowd and the celiac crowd is not happy because they're ruining gluten-free for everyone yeah they're actually kind of killing it and you know so so now they can't really depend on the fact that the sign says gluten-free on the front mm. door for it to actually be 
be gluten free. So they'll look around, they'll look at the, you know, they'll look at some of the other pastries if there's gluten, if there's like gluten products sold and a non-gluten section in a bakery, for instance, like there's like, okay, we're out of here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we have a friend, two friends that are have celiac disease. And at first, like we've known them for a long time, like 10 years ago, they were like, oh, this gluten-free trend is amazing. It's really helping us out. Yeah. But then as more and yeah. more people come in and mass produce these gluten-free things that aren't super careful, now they're like, well, now I have to be even more careful. Because yeah, because now the label doesn't mean yeah. anything. Yeah, and, and people are saying they're gluten free when they're not, and they're so people, you know, waiter like no one believes them. Oh, gluten free! I'm just gonna have a little bit of bread. Yeah. 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 We're going yeah. to put um, the JP Sears video on how to become gluten intolerant in the show notes. Just in case. Yeah. <laughs> so we talked a little bit about health just like the sort of the nebulous qual, like what does health mean a, a few minutes ago? And I think it pertains to this next question, right? Um, like what about the health at every size? Like, can you be healthy at every size? What do you think about that? So I think that this has everything to do with the definition of health. And it has everything to do with, you know, how things get medicalized and how disease becomes disease, like how something becomes a disease, right? So, you know, diseases are, you, from a relativistic point of view, diseases are ideas, they're made up, right? So we get to decide certain um, components of disease. When we say uh, hepatitis B, what we're talking about is not the virus that invades your liver and causes problems. What we're talking about is everything that is included, all the baggage that is included with what that looks like, who gets it, how do you get it, you know, and then also in some ways, like why society thinks that you get it, mm -hmm. right? Um, so health, is a really nebulous term because it means different things to different people. And the World Health Organization <laughs> of all places has the most nebulous definition of health. So it's not, help, it's not helpful um, in terms of defining much of anything. So when we say, well, can you be healthy at every size? The answer can be yes or no, depending on which direction you're coming at with this idea that we call health, right? So what is healthy at that point? And who gets to decide what is healthy? And so, you know, when we talk about uh, things like lab values or things like BMI, um, those numbers are decided upon by some body of people to say, if you cross this threshold, we consider you to now have this particular disease, right? So if your BMI is higher than 25, we now consider you to be obese, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so now we are going to stick this label on you regardless of how you feel, regardless of how you 
get about your day, regardless of, you know, the, any, you know, the lack or the presence of any difficulties that you have or any, any other component. This is just the number. You've crossed the number and now you have this thing. We, we've slapped this label on you. So, you know, and there are, there are reasons for why 25 is the number. And that number is only that number for mostly Caucasian populations and the number is actually lower for Asian populations. And again, it's kind of made up, um, you know, based on something, but it's still, you know, a little bit on the arbitrary side where they're like, okay, well, we, we think the cutoff, the acceptable cutoff should be here, right? Based on, you know, certain risks that are present and all of that. Yeah, all jazz, of these things, right? there's, there's somebody, an infinite scale, like an infinite number of measurements from one to the, correct. to whatever. And at some point yeah. they have to say, okay, well, what, at what point are we going to start worrying that somebody is at risk? Let's make a line. Yeah. yeah. And so they make the line and then because of some of the ways that health and medicine and even in other health professions and other complementary professions, right, um, the line becomes like a, an absolute Or insurance. Line. And insurance, yeah. But even in places that, you know, even in spheres where there is no, not necessarily insurance, like, I'm, you know, I think there, there, are, there are certain lines, even in, even in homeopathy, which, you know, is very quickly sort of having its own identity crisis. Um, you know, there are lines in homeopathy where it's like, okay, well, this, this dilution is of this strength. And this dilution is of this strength, and we have this line that says you must not cross this line, right? And you can't dilute past here, or you shouldn't dilute lower than here, right? And that's just that's a kind of an arbitrary line based on a bunch of different ideas and what people think is acceptable risk, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, so it healthy at any size has very much to do with this sort of very dichotomous way of looking at healthy versus not healthy as being one of two states, right? So if you can only exist in either a healthy or a not healthy state, of course you want to exist in the healthy side, but health is not a dichotomous state, right? It's, it's because we don't exist as like, you know, ones and zeros. Mm -hmm. But that's the way that we label things for the most part. And so I think that that's the problem that has that has brought forth, I think, this problem of can you be healthy at any size? Because healthy has different meanings for different people. And also there are so many facets to health that you can be healthy in one aspect and maybe not so healthy in a different aspect. And do they just balance, you know, is this like, you know, some random equation where they balance each other out? Like if you you know, if you don't suffer from a mental health problem, but you're a little overweight, is that, does that make you any less or more healthy than someone who maybe does suffer from like a mild, you know, mental health problem and isn't mildly overweight? Like what's, where, where does that line, why, why does that line get drawn? Like who gets to decide right. what that is? Right. Well, and I, I think at least the, the conversations that I'm following online with a lot of advocates are about not assuming that just because you're slightly or more overweight is that you're somebody who eats unhealthy or doesn't exercise or, or is lazy or whatever the labels are that are put on people and to just 
open and more of a broad discussion about what are all the factors that are going in and to not be denied care because you look a certain way uh, or is assumed that you have certain kinds of behaviors that you may or may not have. It's just um, it's a very blanket kind of reference. Well, for me, I think the, the biggest thing is if somebody is quote unquote overweight and they go into a doctor, they don't want to be told no matter what the problem is, that the problem is probably their weight. Like they want the, the doctor to look at them deeper, like and look deeper into it. Yeah. And not say, well, yeah. you know, lose 20 pounds and then come back and we'll talk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it has more to do with how people need to be like seen by their by their practitioners, right? And and feel like they are people, not just numbers. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. This is really, really helpful. I feel like we could have a part two to this one. Um, and just we can have a part two to this one. I don't get I don't mind, but maybe not maybe no, no, not no. tonight. So to wrap up, um, we get questions a lot. So and questions that we yeah. can't answer and, and it'll shouldn't. be very yeah, no. And it'll be like a lot of them are like a, a lot of our answers are like, well it depends. And here's a link to an article by a doctor. Like make your yeah. own decision. So it'll be nice to yeah. have Dr. Ninja available if we can find them again. So yeah. you don't just answer questions for lay people, you also help professionals. Um and just as we kind of land our discussion, can you tell us about the book you wrote? Yeah, so the so the book that I wrote is um, called "Question the Start and End with the Question." It's and it's written more for health professionals than it is for non-health professionals, um, because I feel like the conversations that we are having about research and evidence-based practice have kind of gone off the rails, um, and I kind of feel like evidence-based fitness had a little bit to do with that. Um, because it was a little bit on the bullying side of things, which I think at the time was well called for, but, you know, probably does not really need to be used anymore. Uh, and I feel where people are starting to fall, maybe fall down a little bit, is in two ways. One is that I feel that a lot of health professionals don't feel like they're prepared to practice evidence-based medicine, even though it's part of the core curriculum of most programs. Um, and the other thing I think is that information is coming at people so fast now. Um, even though the progress of science is actually exceedingly slow, it can feel like you are constantly falling behind. And so if you don't have a good sort of bird's eye view at how fast things are actually traveling, then it can feel like you're just constantly having to deal with this this flood of stuff that is coming at you. And so that book is sort of the start of trying to change the way that we look at research and evidence-based practice in general to just see it from a different path because I feel like right now again going back to our health at any size thing a little bit that you are either in or not in the camp and and if you're if you're evidence-based 
then you're fully evidence-based. And if you're not evidence-based, then you're almost anti-evidence-based. Like you're not just not evidence-based, like you're actually actively against it. I can't believe your title and, doesn't have evidence-based in it. I know. I you like, like, you oh, that was such a bad idea in retrospect, but... Um, so there are groups, there are, there are people online that like if your website or whatever doesn't yeah. have evidence-based all over it, they're like, yeah. well, I'm not gonna look, why are you writing? Yeah, yeah. And so I think there is actually a third path and that's what I'm proposing. And that's what this new project is, is basically, you know, I mean, it starts with the, the book that has not yet been released. The preview is available, but it, it's actually going through proofing right now. Um, and then, you know, I have a mentorship for health professionals uh, who are interested in, again, like seeing this problem from a different perspective that actually enables them to move forward as opposed to just feeling inadequate and paralyzed all the time. Um, and then I will be developing other things that are not necessarily for health professionals as well. Um, but right now that's sort of all I can have on my plate. I think between that and Dear Dr. Ninja, you've got a, got a, a good... Dear Dr. Ninja is a lot of fun. It really is a lot of fun. I'm hoping to get more questions. We enjoyed oh, having him we'll on be, the show. We'll be, we'll, be sending, yeah. we'll be sending some questions. Yeah. We'll be sending our people He's, your way, too. Where, so, yeah. where can people find you? Uh, so I blog on Medium now, um, and you, you can just search for Brian Chung. Um, criticalmass.ninja is the is where the book preview sits, and then uh, deardoctor.ninja is where Dear Doctor Ninja lives, um, and then sort of the central everything is brianchung.org, which I got the idea from Derek Sivers to have just you know like a Your hub, a very very simple looking hub that is not fancy at all. That's like here's what I'm doing, and that's it. Right. Um, so, you know, that, that was a very cool idea that I thought would be nice to have. Excellent. But, We're going to put all of those in the show notes so that people can just click away. Yeah. Thank you. Brian, thank you for, uh, for having us, having, uh, for joining us. And, uh, yeah, it's been too long. It's been too we'll long. We'll do it again. Please give Dr. Yeah. Ninja our best. <laughs> Hey, thank you for listening. If you like the show, why not subscribe using the podcast app of your choice and get each episode delivered to you automatically. If you love the show, consider sharing it or leaving a rating or review using the links in the show notes. You can find your free downloads and all the ways to work with us at eatmovelive52.com slash podcast guest. And thank you for listening to the Eat Move Live 52 podcast. Thank you.